This is The Guardian. It's a slightly different kind of episode this week. Me and the Politics Weekly UK team are off on our holidays for a few weeks, but we thought it would be worth leaving you with some of our most memorable moments and interviews from the past year. Everybody has either been to the funeral of somebody he did know personally or somebody he would know like a second hand. We are the most trusted profession and we're being dragged through the courts by the least trusted group of people in England. Now what does that say about, about this country and about the people that's leading it? Things were all right there, you know, we had money left over every week. Now we're working to live, aren't we? So every time we do a food shop, that thing's gone up and this thing's gone up. And when you add it all together with three children and pets and everything else to afford, you know, it's, yeah, it's scary. It's been another year of the cost of living hitting people really hard, with a huge number of people coming out on strike. In May, the Royal College of Nursing, which up until late last year had never been on strike before, was standing its ground against the government and its pay offer. And I had a fascinating conversation with Francis O'Grady, the former General Secretary of the Trades Union Congress, and Pat Cullen, the General Secretary of the RCN, about the treatment she felt her union was receiving from the government. There is something here about us being a 90% female workforce. Mm, I agree. There is no doubt about that. And that's not being disrespectful to the brilliant men in nursing. But actually, they also get a raw deal because they've joined a predominantly female Mm. workforce. But we are 90%. And if you look at the people that's speaking out against us and trying to silence those nurses again, and I hate to say it, even the general managers that came out and spoke over this weekend, the chief executive of the NHS employers, another man who has never walked in the shoes of those nurses or sat at a bedside when they're holding a person's hand that they have to walk away from and know they've left care undone simply because they've 20 other patients behind behind that needs the same care and a totally depleted workforce. And who's doing it? It's the value of caring and the, the, the value that this government and other, other people put mm. on caring and, and, and trying to minimise that. When I would say there's very few people can actually ca- carry out the care and treatment that our mm. nursing staff and indeed all our healthcare workers do. And that is being devalued for, all, for a number of reasons. That's fascinating, Francis, isn't it? The fact that there's a very sort of clearly gendered aspect to all this. I think there is. The idea that this that this predominantly female part of the workforce can somehow be kicked around and taken for granted by largely male politicians precisely because they're female in the expectation that in the end they'll just they'll be grateful for what they've given and that that's changed. Well, I mean, another sector, look at social care, overwhelmingly women, the vast yeah, yeah. majority on less than £10 an hour. That's right. Doing incredibly skilled work and it just being taken for granted that women work for love. Now, every social care worker I've ever spoken to you know, our activists in trade unions are absolutely dedicated to their jobs. And, you know, I've said this before, I've been touched, you know, as anybody's relied on social care workers by, you know, the satisfaction that they take from doing that job well. It means a lot. But you can't pay your bills with love. You know, you have to get a decent wage too. And I also think, by the way, Pat, I, I think... They struggled with the fact that 
a number of our union leaders are now women well, in yeah, education yeah, yeah. and health. Yeah. It also applies to the leader of Unison. As, uh, Christina, Christina McAnee, yeah, yeah, fantastic yeah. leader. You know, yeah. Sharon Graham, Joe Grady. That's right. You know, That's right. we've got Mary in uh, NEU. We've got loads of women leaders. Now, pause there. Hold on a minute. That's really interesting because that was not the case 10, 15, no, 20 years ago. it wasn't. It makes the politics of this strike wave very, very different. And right? the government was using a playbook from a time when they could kind of depict trade unions as being all about blokes stood around, you know, on picket lines with sunglasses on. You know, the world has changed and they needed to get with it, but failed to. Now, that brings us on to another possibly gendered question, is how negotiations work and the positions and attitudes that the government has taken in the middle of this strike wave. It seems to me that the government has sort of resorted to an old Tory cliche, really, which is that in the midst of disputes with working people, you have to be firm and tough and all of that. And you paint the trade unions as villains in sympathetic media outlets and so on. You know, it's been very, very familiar. I'm old enough to remember the late 70s, just about, and certainly the 80s. And the government's approach to this has had lots and lots of echoes, completely deliberately on their part, of that period of history. And I I wonder to what extent, in your case, Pat, you've seen that close up in the way that negotiations have been conducted. Has it been like that close up that you felt as a sort of unnecessary belligerence, really, in in, the, in those negotiations? I think I was the first one to actually maybe put my head above the parapet about this Secretary of State, and I think I did use those words about him. I, I think I did call what, belligerent? him belligerent. I did, yes, I did. I did say that. There's a number of reasons for that. Francis mentioned earlier about how long it took them getting into a room in the first place. They kept our profession and other healthcare workers, including our ambulance workers, out on picket lines for 12 weeks before they got into a room to start to talk about pay. Now, during that time, we heard all the, the rhetoric coming from the Secretary of State about my door is always open. And that was that was quite a belligerent attitude to to the workforce and to, to me as their general secretary and to others. And then we had a couple of meetings where I walked through that metaphorical, my door is always open, and went in. And his attitude to me was anything but pleasant. And the night before our first strike, or two nights before the first strike, eventually I got in to meet with him. And it was not a pleasant meeting. And I said to him very clearly, you can stop this. I remember saying to him, if you move to push our nurses onto picket lines, you'll never get them back because you'll have lost them. Just tell me a bit more about that. So you just got the impression straight away that the Secretary of State was not sincerely interested in what you and I would understand as an honest and open negotiation process. You could tell straight away that he had a sort of hardened, belligerent, my way or the highway sort of approach to this. Certainly in the early days, there's no doubt that that was the case. And that's the reason we had to stand outside his room for for 12 weeks before he opened the door and sincerely got in. Once we got in for for the round of negotiations that ended up with the pay offer, I think there were other people introduced into the picture that brought a more rounded approach from from his end to to those those discussions and negotiations that perhaps helped him then to see it slightly different as well to be honest how Um, much of that belligerence uh, is still there given that your union among others is in the position that it's in i suppose the part-wrenching thing out of all of this was that 
during, without saying too much about negotiations, because it's not right to talk outside the negotiating room too much, but during that period, there were certainly very positive comments made to me about this government wanting to have a different relationship with nursing moving forward and recognising that our nursing staff were on picket lines, not simply to put an extra couple of pounds in their pockets, but if they listened to any of those nurses that were saying, this is about trying to save the NHS, which is totally broken, and about our about safe nurse staffing because of the risk that they're carrying and the risk that patients are carrying. And all of that coming together, they, they said they would want a different relationship with us. But then where we end up now, simply because those nursing staff, the 90% female workforce that I talk about, had their voice and rejected his offer, he has resorted back to type again. Right, and that's right. what we see. That's what we see now being played out. And that's that's really, really difficult for our nursing staff to take because it seems to be there was an insincerity, perhaps, maybe around have wanting this different relationship. And if it's this diff- if this is the different relationship our nursing staff are saying to me, we don't want that, Pat, because it's certainly not going to deliver for, for our patients. In February, it was the anniversary of the start of the war in Ukraine. The first ever Politics Weekly UK that I hosted happened on the morning after the Russian invasion. Soon after that, we spoke to people affected by the war, one of whom was the Ukrainian MP Kira Ruddick. What she said about the day-to-day reality of the war for her country really stayed with me. So, to mark a year since the conflict, we got in contact with her again. And I should warn you before you listen that Kira does talk about aspects of the war that some people may find upsetting. A year ago, we knew that it was not given. So right now we are treating it as a huge gift. Just the fact that we are here and we are alive. And uh, this is probably one of the main lessons. I'm fine. I'm in Kiev. Kiev is not surrounded. We are still uh, living with the curfew 11 p.m. till 5 a.m. We see that we have made like, a tremendous journey since the last year. And Nobody could have predicted that the war would be so long, but also nobody could have predicted how the world world's attitude towards Ukraine changed. Uh, we have gone through so many things that were deemed impossible in the past, starting from nobody believing in our survival for more than a couple of days, then getting the heavy weapons, then... Uh, going on to counter-offense and actually regaining half of the territories that Russia was able to capture. Every single time we are thinking anything is impossible, uh, with the right proper push, we are able to make it happen. Just tell me about um, your day-to-day life as a, as a member of parliament now. Uh, so parliament is gathering at least once in two weeks. We are gathering in secrecy, so we are not announcing it in advance. We uh, usually vote for a number of items uh, in a couple of important directions. The first one is to do everything that the military asks us. And second is uh, our journey to become a a member of EU. Uh, The third point is, of course, the humanitarian infrastructure economical direction, where we have to make sure that our economy does not completely die. And the fourth direction is fighting uh, Russian propaganda, fighting Russian influence. And it's like really important direction that we have been worked on. My everyday life as a person is rather you wake up, 
you check if you have uh, uh, electricity, if you have uh, heat, and if you have running water. This is the first check. Many times you wake up to the air raid sirens, and so you have like the last hour of sleep from under the stairs where we hide since the day one of the full-scale invasion. There we have like cereals and everything to have like breakfast. We have the lights turned on all the times because when the electricity gets on and sometimes it's like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., you have to get up quickly and start doing everything around the house, uh, like start your washing machine, dishwasher, everything, uh, and be very quickly because uh, it it may not last for long. This winter has been very hard on us. That's true. Okay. Let me ask you about the experiences of people perhaps elsewhere in Ukraine. We read a lot and we hear a lot about awful atrocities committed by Russian forces, human rights abuses, the use of rape as a, as a weapon of war, children disappearing from Ukraine. I wonder how much is that in people's thoughts? Because I suppose everybody must know somebody in those parts of Ukraine who's been directly affected by those things. Everybody has either been to the funeral of somebody he did know personally or somebody he would know like a second hand. You know, I have been to Bucha and Irpin, first day after liberation. I have seen the atrocities and the results of it firsthand, the mass graves, the dead bodies of the women who were tried to be burned to cover for what have happened to them when they were alive. And I met and spoke with women who were victims of the sexual violence. It, uh, it is so terrifying that things like this can happen in 21st century. And we know that these atrocities, they happen to people at the occupied territories right now when we are speaking. Probably the, the most terrifying image that I have seen in this war was this box of dental crowns found in one of the, in one of the torture rooms in Izum. I have only seen something like this in, in Auschwitz. And still, it's still hard to process that people like us, we used to speak like same language as them, would do something like that to us. The World Cup is here, and can you hear that? That's the sound of you missing out. Drop everything you're doing, unless you're driving, and tune into the Guardian Women's Football Weekly podcast, because with even more teams and more living legends than ever before, this is one hell of a World Cup. To keep up with all the action, we'll be doing three episodes a week for the entirety of the tournament, you lucky things. We'll have the usual guests and lots of new voices. Join us, Suzanne Rack and Faker Others, and listen to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back. March marked the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War, when we discussed what the conflict looked like on the ground and its impact on both the country that the US and UK invaded and politics across the world. At that time, I was still a music journalist, but there was one person whose writing on Iraq I made sure I read, The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland. I now call Johnny a good friend, and we sat down to talk about as many aspects of the war as we could. For me, the Iraq war and its fallout represented the beginning of the political period we're arguably still stuck in, when people lost a vast amount of trust in mainstream politicians. The thing that I think is hard for people to perhaps realise now, if they hadn't lived through it, was the extent to which politicians, particularly this Labour government, had been trusted um, initially. There was, now in retrospect, you might think it is quite naive. In 1997, people did have tremendously high hopes and trust in Tony Blair, in the Labour government. And I've always thought that partly the vehemence of the opposition to Blair after Iraq was because people felt angry with themselves in yeah, way, yeah. for having been let down. I remember quite a few columnists writing that it's as if there was often that people would write this about Tony Blair as if he'd been the sort of young suitor who had seduced the British people and he'd been so charming and he'd brought, you know, red roses on Valentine's Day and he'd taken you out to dinner and people kind of had been a bit infatuated with him. And therefore the disenchantment was so much stronger when uh, it was revealed that he, as they thought, had been, you know, less than honest about the march to war. So there was a process of disenchantment. That's that's millions of people's story. And it's mine to some extent. Definitely is. I mean, because Tony Blair carried the optimism of leaving behind those 18 dark, horrible, failed years of conservatism, we projected so many things onto him. And he was happy to have those things projected onto him. You know, when I went to a music magazine in 1997, <laughs> the issue after the election, we usually had a centre spread you could pull out and stick on your wall of a pop group. And, and we put Tony Blair in a gilt frame, you know. I know why I did that. I felt really, really euphoric and optimistic. And, and, and I can't be blamed for that. But then standing there in February 2003 in the bitter cold among two, you know, among a million people, knowing full well what was about to happen. I mean, talk about disillusionment. You know, it's immense. Yeah, no, people forget that to be disenchanted, you first had to be enchanted. And people were enchanted with... Tony Blair and I think the re- the vehemence of that opposition was in a way the sort of heartbreak of that that the new labor love affair was over at that point. Obviously we've talked a lot about Tony Blair. Looking back on this, it's amazing to me to be reminded of what a high-flown audacious sort of leader and politician Tony Blair was. Particularly from 2001 onwards really. He was always telling us what kind of world we were living in and and that he knew and the rest of us probably didn't. And he was there to tell us, and more other point, that he could be sort of centrally involved in remaking the world. That was that was his pitch. And any politician in the UK trying that now would be laughed out of town. You'd know straight away it was sort of ludicrous and hubristic, and it would inevitably lead to disaster. It's like someone wrote a Shakespearean political tragedy with this central figure who experiences that sort of moral fall. Yes. I mean, uh, I remember there was a BBC adaptation of the Anthony Trollope novel, uh, He Knew He Was Right, 
at just the same time as all this was going on. I remember thinking, God, that's that couldn't be more perfect because that was Tony Blair. He knew he was right. He just was so certain. And it was amazingly persuasive. This happened globally. He became the salesman for this war. George W. Bush was tongue-tied and clumsy, a kind of joke figure. But the global advocate of this change uh, was him. And suddenly Britain really was punching above its weight. The, the final act in the tragedy, I guess, the final scene, is the report of the Chilcot Inquiry, which was set up under Gordon Brown, which concluded, among other things, that the UK had chosen to join the invasion before peaceful options had been exhausted, that Blair had deliberately exaggerated the threat posed by Saddam Hussein, that although Tony Blair had said, almost up to the moment of invasion, no decision has been taken. I remember that refrain endlessly. He told George Bush in the summer of 2002, I will be with you, whatever. And when that report was published, Tony Blair did this very, very long press conference when he looked ashen, right? I mean, that really was like something from a drama. The decisions I made, I've carried with me for 13 years and will do so for the rest of my days. There will not be a day of my life where I do not relive and rethink what happened. I think that moment was in a way overshadowed. It came just a week after the Brexit referendum. And I think people were particularly you know, Remainers were so shell-shocked and traumatised that in a way it didn't get the attention it probably deserved. Blair did look ashen after that report came. I think his view was always, look, you may regard it as a mistake, and if you do have that view of it, at least know it was an honest one. You know, he would say it was absolutely the right thing to do, but what the crucial for him was that you can disagree on whether it was a good or bad decision, but believe him that it was honestly undertaken in good faith. He believed what he said. The problem I always had with that was that famous dossier, uh, the introduction, the foreword written by Tony Blair with his signature at the bottom said, it is beyond doubt yeah, yeah. that there are weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, yeah. The, that, that was not true because there was doubt. Even and he knew there was because the intelligence had was caveated and qualified. That was the dishonesty, not the idea that he sat there in Downing Street cackling away, knowing it was false but lying to the British people. That's not right. Um, the sort of blyer image, you know, that the way they would the stop the war crowd would have banners with Tony Blair's name on, mis deliberately misspelt, etc. Not it's not that that it's something different from that, but it was that was a fateful dishonesty there. I think there were see I think there were three lies. I think if you get intelligence that you know is hesitant and qualified and you describe it as extensive, detailed and authoritative, I don't know what that is if it's not a lie. If you say no decision to go to war has been taken, no decision to go to war has been taken, when you have told the American president I I will be with you whatever, that's so dishonest I think it takes you into the same moral territory. And if, and we haven't mentioned this, you tell everybody that the French position on the UN Security Council is that they will rule out support for war in any event when the position of France is that they rule out war for as long as Iraq is cooperating with weapons inspectors, which is something very different. Then again, you're into the moral territory of lying. And I suppose that's why I still feel so sore about it. And as you may have noticed, why these quotes are just just sit there. 
what Tony Blair yeah. said in the Houses of Parliament and all that, I just remember from the time I didn't have to research those. They're yeah. there because they're so vivid and morally they take you t- to where they did. You're absolutely right about all of them. I suppose what I was trying to say was that the piece of Blair's psychology that is missed is that I think he he knew he was right uh, to you know the trollop title. He believed it himself, yeah, yeah. I think. Last point. It's a huge point, but answer it in a sentence or two if you can. You're a pro. The late writer, thinker, and academic Tony Jutt in 2005, I was reminded yesterday as I read some of his writing, said this in the context of Iraq in 2005. If the United States ceases to be credible as a force for good, the world will not come to a stop, but the world will become that much safer for tyrants and crooks at home that's an interesting use of words, and abroad. The international anarchy, so painstakingly averted by two generations of enlightened American statesmen, may soon engulf us again. President Bush sees freedom on the march. I wish I shared his optimism. I see a bad moon rising. He was right, wasn't he? Yeah, Tony Jutt was a brilliant voice throughout all this. And I think that first point is one that perhaps some of the anti-war left missed, which was the idea that, oh, an America humbled and, and humiliated makes somehow the world a better place. The, the, the sentiment he expressed there, Judd, about it being a safer place for tyrants and evildoers is been borne out. I mean, the slaughter in Syria, 700,000 people. Assad was able to do that in a way because he knew no one was ever going to come for him. And that was a consequence of the mistake is far too mild a word. Folly is too mild a word. It was a crime what happened in Iraq. And the consequences of it we're still living with. That was The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland speaking to me back in March for the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. If you're interested in US politics, you should listen to his podcast, Politics Weekly America, where he spoke to columnist Peter Beinart, who was supportive of the war, but later regretted his decision. The final part of this episode has special significance to me because it's about my adopted hometown of Froome in Somerset. Just over a month ago, we went on the by-election trail after my local MP, David Warburton, announced that he was finally standing down. As usual, as well as talking to a couple of the candidates, We spoke to a lot of people we met on the street, at work and outside their homes. And very vividly, we were reminded of the basic public mood right now. A feeling of exhaustion, the same estrangement from politics that dates back all those years, and a sense that Westminster has yet to really reconnect with people. The political question we always ask people is how life is at the minute, you know. Tough. Go on. Well, it really, for me personally, it's very tough. I'm about to lose my home. Um, quite seriously, because, um, I mean, my husband works. In fact, he's held down two jobs for 20-plus years. Um, but for reasons I'd rather not go into, and when we've always paid our, uh, paid our mortgage, paid all our bills, but we're losing our home. And for someone of my age now to try and apply to the council for accommodation is just an absolute joke, because the eight... Um, there is nothing out there. B, while my husband's still working, they w- it wouldn't apply to us. And yet we've paid a full stamp all our working lives and we've got nothing back for it at all. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... That's quite uh, a common experience now, increasingly. What? Just the sheer impossibility of housing for people. Oh, it's, it's dreadful. Excuse me. Sorry to disturb you. We're journalists. We work for The Guardian, the newspaper. Okay. This is Kylie, who's a care worker. Okay. Do you live in Froome? Yes. 
Can we talk to you for a minute? Uh, rude question, how old are you? 33. Are you? How's yeah. life at the minute? It's alright. Struggle sometimes with everything, but yeah, not too bad. And your housing situation? I only ask you that because everyone knows about interest rates and rents going up and all um, that. Yes, I'm council at the moment, but my rent's gone up. So, hard work, but you do it, you've got to pay it, you just want to live somewhere. Right. And sort of the monthly business or weekly business of making ends meet? How's that? Hard work. I mean, I work in, in care, so I'll, you know, wages aren't great there, but I just probably make ends meet. Just, just about. Just about, yeah. Right. With a, with a child as well, so it's quite hard. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. How many kids you got? Just one. Right. And say when you were 25, did you think that was how you would be living in your early 30s? No. No, I had my daughter when I was 25, and things were all right there. You know, we had money left over every week. Now we're working to live, aren't we? So, that's yeah, what it is, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. Uh, how's the town doing? What's your sense of uh, it as a place to live? A lot of shops are closing, so there's not really much in in frame. Some of the nice shops that we do have are too expensive, yeah, yeah. Um, especially up the, the, you know, the high streets, but... I don't really shop much in town because <laughs> you don't have the money to. Yeah, all the so-called artisan, artisan shops and all that yeah. are, are expensive, right? I never, I've never been in there. I put my head in once and I've walked away. Wow, okay. <laughs> okay. Do you pay much attention to politics? Not really, no. I don't really understand much because it just makes me angry, really, with this. Do you know so. about the local MP? Um, I heard something in the paper about stuff. I don't really know much about him. I've never met him. I've never seen him. Right, okay. He's resigned, he's announced he's standing down, and we're going to have a by-election here where we get to choose a new MP. Yeah, it's probably the right thing. You going to vote? I don't really know. I don't think that there's much that they can do for the town at the moment. Do you have a a party that you've tended to vote for down the years? Um, I've normally gone for Labour. I've never, ever voted Conservative. Um, I just found that whilst we have a Conservative government, it's not really, it gets worse every year. And you work in care, you said? Yeah. What kind of care? Um, residential, so a care home. I've but been like there. older people? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I've been there four years. Excuse me, asking how much do you get an hour? Um, it's just gone up to 10.70. Wow, okay. Which I can get more working in Weatherspoons, to be honest. <laughs> but it's the job I want to do, so I accept it. Wow. And were you, were you working in a care home during the pandemic? Yes. Wow. Yeah. How was that? Quite hard. It gets very emotional, even talking about it now. Yeah, it was. We had no help, <laughs> no staff because everyone was sick. So no pay rises, no incentive to 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 keep going. And I had to look after my daughter through the pandemic. So it was, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't great. You still feel that you still feel oh, God. you're sort of living in. The oh yeah, like I I still feel like we're troubled by it. Wow, well, no, the pandemic, into inflation, the pandemic, and all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, one damn thing after another, yeah, right? There's people like me who worked through the pandemic, and now we're struggling. And the fu- how do you feel about the future? Oh, I try not to look ahead at the moment. <laughs> if I don't look ahead, I don't worry, if that makes sense. God, what a thing, though. Yeah. In the yeah. sense that we should be able to look yeah. ahead and feel some degree of optimism, yeah. right? My daughter's like, I can't wait to grow up. And I'm like, you really don't. <laughs> you really don't want to right now, because I don't know what her future holds, you know? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it, looking it ahead? It is, and I don't want her to feel hunger or finding money to look for food and you know i want her to realize that to work you know you get nice things but at the moment we're working just to live so it's a big change isn't it? it is yeah. yeah it's now gone 4 p.m and the streets start to fill with cars coming back from the school run 
We spot 31-year-old mum of three, Zoe, pulling into her driveway and ask her what she makes of the current state of Britain. We're due to remortgage soon and it's terrifying. Um, you just don't know where you kind of stand anymore. You feel like you don't know whether you can afford to remain living here. It's terrifying. It's as bad as that. It is as bad as that. I feel like it is as bad as that. I think because when we first bought this house, things were in a much better position than they are now. And if you ever wanted to move, we've had this on the market for a year now wish to move from here but we just can't afford to so we're very much in a position where you do feel like you're stuck i think yeah what's your sense of the sort of state of the country in general with that as one sort of part of the picture like how what the future feels like the future's scary more so for my children and this generation because we've kind of we've had conversations where we spoke about what would you like to do when you're older and where would you like to live and things but actually the reality is will they ever be able to afford to move out Probably not. I mean, the way it is now, will they ever be able to afford a, a deposit even now? Because it looks like these are going to be at home forever at this rate. From the outside, you're doing okay, right? You live in a nice new housing yes. development, right? Yeah. And, and, you, and you're a property owner. Yes. And yet you're, you feel that the future looks quite bleak from where I you're standing. Think so, yes, because I feel like you can have these things, but to move forward in life or to move up the ladder is the terrifying part because the rates are so high and everything is so expensive now yeah. that kind of what you have got, you're so grateful for and you're kind of, you know, happy to kind of stay where you are because it's a lot safer. Every time we do a food shop, that thing's gone up and this thing's gone up. And when you add it all together with three children and yeah, yeah, pets yeah. and everything else to afford, you know, it's, yeah, it's scary. Do you work? Yes, I do. I work from home. What do you do? Accounts. Okay. Yeah. Are you going to vote in the by-election? I'm not sure because I feel like everything is so out of your control. I feel like, regardless of what your opinion is, I actually feel like it doesn't make much difference anymore. I don't know, I just feel like you don't have a voice anymore. Have you okay. you've voted in the past, presumably? You've never voted? For that reason, I have not, no. And how old are you, excuse me asking? 31. And you've never voted? No. Wow. Yeah, for that reason, I just feel that it's not... That regardless of my vote, I feel like it would never be the favourable vote anyway. I don't know why, I just feel like it's out of our control. I really do. Voices like those tell you a lot more about the UK and where it might be going than any opinion poll or set-piece interview with a politician. And as the election slowly approaches, we'll obviously be including more. We'll be back on Thursday, the 7th of September. You can listen to all the podcasts you've heard today in full by going to this episode page where you'll find them all. This episode was produced by Frankie Tobe. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Thank you.